0: This week, the World Health Organization issued its seventh medical product alert for 2022, warning about eight, quote, substandard products, children's cough syrups and the like. Behind that official document is an immense and horrifying tragedy. 159 children in Indonesia have died of acute kidney failure recently. The suspect cough syrups contain toxic levels of DEG, diethylene glycol, or similar chemicals. Indonesian authorities have traced the products to two local Indonesian manufacturers and have issued product recalls and sales bans. The WHO alert ends with the ominous statement, these products may have been distributed through informal markets to other countries or regions. The tragedy is shocking in scale and shocking too in how little media attention it's had compared to the mass deaths in Seoul on Halloween or the recent bridge collapse in Gujarat. Another aspect of this tragedy is that DEG poisonings are not uncommon in the developing world. 70 children have also died in Gambia this year in similar circumstances. Incidents like this are the result not just of substandard manufacturing, but also substandard regulation. And that's a theme explored in a new book published just in October called The Truth Pill, The Myth of Drug Regulation in India. It's co-written by pharmaceutical whistleblower Dinesh Thakur and lawyer Prashant Reddy. And Prashant Reddy joins us now from Hyderabad. Welcome to Sunday Extra, Prashant.
1: Thank you, Julian. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: Prashant, the truth pill begins with an account of a remarkably similar series of events to what's happened in Indonesia that happened in Ramnagar in 2019. Could you tell us what happened there and why you decided to open your book with that story?
1: Oh uh, Yes, you're right, Julian. I mean, the, uh, the prologue of the book, you know, we've doc- we documented five instances of DEG poisoning in the recent history of India. And uh, we did so to highlight the consequences of poor drug regulation. And basically in the Ramnagar incident, which is a district in Jammu, uh, 11 children died because of a cough syrup that was found to be contaminated with diethylene glycol. Diethylene glycol is not supposed to be in cough syrups, so it's an antifreeze agent. But the reason it does find its way, and we keep seeing incidents like this in India, in Panama, and Bangladesh, is because one of the main inputs used in the manufacture of cough syrup is industrial solvents like propylene glycol, because you need to dissolve the medicine into a syrup form because that's easier to administer on children. And these pharmaceutical manufacturers source propylene glycol from chemical traders. And these chemical traders sell propylene glycol of different grades of purity. And it's known that there may be errors at the end of the chemical trader because of which the pharma company is supposed to test each batch of propylene glycol to test for contamination because it's a known issue. The moment they fail to test is when we see tragedies like the one in Jammu or the one in Gambia.
0: You also recount the very first known incident of a mass DEG poisoning event in the United States. Could you tell us about that and perhaps contrast the response that occurred there to what you've observed in the developing world and particularly India?
1: Yes. So in 1937, there was this American company that was trying to experiment with selling this new wonder drug, which was at the time called sulfinamide. It was basically one of the first antibiotics that had been discovered in that age, which had an amazing range of applications. I mean, that was an era where, you know, you could die from a simple uh, cut on your finger if it was it got infected by sepsis. Now, the challenge for that company was they wanted to market it to children. And they decided that the syrup form was the best. However, they didn't seem to have completely gauged the possible side effects or the toxicity of the solvent that they were using, especially on children. So in that case, the company didn't realize it. There were 100 Americans who ended up dying, mostly children. And the very next year, the U.S. Congress uh, revamped American laws to make sure that there was more focus on safety of the drug. And uh, since then, as far as I'm aware, the Americans haven't faced a similar incident. Now, in countries like India, we have some of the similar regulations. It's just a question of these companies not playing by the book. And the common thread that we've noticed between the company accused for the deaths in Ramnagar in Jammu and the company now accused of the deaths in Gambia, which is also an Indian company, is that they've had a track record of not following good manufacturing practices and the Indian system has been too lenient towards them. So these guys have gotten away more than a dozen times when infractions have been pointed out and eventually they're going to make a mistake that's bad enough to result in deaths.
0: Yes, it's interesting, Prashant, that you use the word myth to sum up your critique of regulatory failures. Could you unpack for us a little bit more what you mean by the idea that drug regulation is a myth?
1: Well, yes. I mean, that was a very conscious choice of words because what we realised was that even the regulations that existed on the books were not really being enforced by the government. And even when the government knew that there were serious loopholes in the law, they still haven't fixed it. If I can give you an example, one of the basic requirements in most national drug regulatory laws is to have a system of national recall. So in India, we have a system where the government does randomly draw samples of drugs from the market to test it. When these drugs fail testing, there is no system in India to recall the drug from across the country. And India is a huge country. We've got a fragmented regulatory system. For the last 46 years, different government committees have been pushing for creating a national drug recall law, and we still don't have a binding legal framework to just recall drugs once we know that they are dangerous to people. So that is one aspect of you know where we just don't have the right regulations in place, and there's no political will to fix it. The other aspect is that enforcement, the uh, drug inspectors. They all come together in this national committee for coordination, and they came out with guidelines specifically saying that we're not going to prosecute each and every case of quality failure of Indian drugs. And they came out with a set of guidelines where basically only a very small percentage of cases would be prosecuted, which is really incredible because you would think that medicine is one area where you would have zero tolerance for any quality deficiencies. Now, even in the small fraction of cases that do get prosecuted, what we discovered to our astonishment is that even when the pharma company pleads guilty or is found guilty after a trial, judicial magistrates in India are exceptionally lenient. And there's obviously there's a small uh, paltry fine that they have to pay, generally less than a thousand Australian dollars. So this is a system that is rigged from end to end in favour of the pharmaceutical industry, which is why we said there's no drug regulation in India.
0: On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Prashant Reddy, the co-author of The Truth Pill, The Myth of Drug Regulation in India. Prashant, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what, from your research, you see as the drivers of these systematic failures to enforce pharmaceutical regulation in India as being
1: well i mean one of the drivers is the lack of state capacity the indian state doesn't have enough experts working within it to guide it the right way so this is a this is a systemic problem across governance in india the other problem which we suspect is the deeper problem in the context of the pharma industry in india is that the pharmaceutical industry in india is one of the rare manufacturing success stories in India, because over the last few decades, India has been trying to compete with China. And the only area that we've really done well is pharmaceutical manufacturing. As a result, the industry is very powerful, and the government is very invested in the growth of the industry. So there is extreme reluctance on the part of the government of India to act against the pharma industry or to tighten regulations. Because I think there is some acknowledgement within the government that the moment they do that, the growth of the pharma industry will slow down in India.
0: Having seen that extraordinary growth in its pharmaceutical sector and the mass scale health benefits that flow from that, not just in India, but around the developing world. Is the rate of incidence of these sorts of terrible events like the DEG poisonings statistically higher than industries of a similar scale than you would expect? Or is this, to some extent, Prashant, a problem of scaling?
1: You know, the simple fact that the U.S. and Europe have not seen mass poisoning events because of DEG at all, that itself is an indicator of how bad the problem is. You know, in India, we've seen five such incidents since 1972. If the one in Gambia is confirmed to be linked to the Indian company, then we're looking at six and the death toll is significant. So there's definitely a problem in India. This is not something, you know, par for the course. The other issue that really concerns us are drugs that don't work. For example, antibiotics, right? If you don't manufacture antibiotics the right way, they are going to contribute to what is now acknowledged to be one of the greatest threats to public health, global public health, is antimicrobial resistance. And quantifying the problem is very, very difficult, you know, because India also doesn't have a very good pharmacovigilance system. That is, anytime a drug doesn't work. A doctor or patient can report it to the government. So trying to draw comparisons between different countries is difficult, but I think a good indicator is always speaking to doctors. When we speak to Indian doctors, they don't have faith in all medicine in the market. They have specific brands which they have tried and tested. They know that they work on patients and they prescribe only those.
0: Prashant, while it is a grim picture that you paint in The Truth Pill, there are some striking examples where responses to a DEG poisoning have been much more effective. Could you tell us about the work of Justice Lenton in Maharashtra?
1: Oh, yes. So in 1986, there was a similar tragedy at one of the biggest uh, government-run hospitals in Bombay. 14 patients died because of DEG contamination. The deaths caused a public outrage. The government was forced to set up a commission of inquiry, which was headed by a sitting judge of the Bombay High Court, uh, Justice Lenton. And he produced a scintillating report at the end of his inquiry. Pinpointing blame at various drug regulators, drug inspectors. He uncovered a web of corruption, you know, where there was clear evidence that pharma companies were paying doctors. And that report was so compelling that the health minister for the state of Maharashtra had to resign. One of the key uh, drug regulatory officials was removed from his post. And that kind of accountability we haven't seen since then, because about 10 years after that tragedy, On the outskirts of Delhi, 33 children died of DEG poisoning, and nothing came off it. And similarly, after the children who died in uh, Ranagar and Jammu, there was barely any reporting in the Indian press. And that's what's kind of worrying for us. You know, in most democracies, the deaths of children is a grave incident. I mean, there are usually political consequences and reform. But somewhere India seems to have lost its way where even the death of children doesn't seem to count for uh, very much of a difference.
0: I was fascinated to learn a little about the personal stories behind both your engagement with this issue and the engagement of your co-author, Dinesh Takur. Could you tell us a little about that, please?
1: In the early 2000s, Randaxi was one of the fastest growing pharma companies in India. It was the largest company in India at that time. So Dinesh came back because he is from India. So he came back from the US, joined Ranbaxy, and then discovered that Ranbaxy was engaged in massive data fraud. Uh, They were basically fabricating a lot of safety data and quality data, which they were submitting to the US FDA. He tried bringing it up internally. The company did nothing, and they made his life difficult. So he finally left the company, and he turned whistleblower for the US FDA, and after a long criminal investigation, Rambaxi pled guilty before American courts and agreed to pay up a fine of about $500 million. Under American law, the whistleblower does get a payout, which was quite substantial. And I think most of us in Dinesh's position, after receiving the payout, would have you know bought a yacht and retired somewhere. <laughs> but Dinesh, being Dinesh, decided that he needed to change things even in India. So he came back to India and he was looking for lawyers to help him on figuring out what exactly was wrong in the Indian system. Because most of his work at ranbax he was facing uh, the U.S. and American regulations, but he had a pretty good idea that there's something rotten even in India. So we had a mutual acquaintance who had put us in touch with each other. And I was, I was practicing as an intellectual property lawyer at that time in a law firm in Delhi. I had some experience working on drug regulatory issues earlier. And when Dinesh was looking for people, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You don't get to work with a whistle to try and reform regulatory laws. So we started our research and we tried moving the Indian Supreme Court for reform. Uh, Supreme Court declined to hear us. They said that, you know, these academic issues, et cetera, et cetera. It was like a 10-minute hearing. And after that, I mean, we were obviously both dejected, but we had put together so much information by the end of the day, which we knew needed to go out to a larger audience is when we decided to write the book. So the idea was to try... And do more broad-based advocacy through the book and reach out to more people, especially doctors, to let them know what exactly are the problems with drug regulation. Because a lot of people, even doctors, we noticed didn't have the vocabulary to articulate their concerns with medicine. So in this book, we give them the knowledge, the tools, the vocabulary to identify what exactly is wrong and what are the reforms that they should be asking the government for.
0: Yes, and there was indeed an ironic thanks from Dinesh at the end of the book, thanking the former Chief Justice of India for dismissing <laughs> your legal action as providing prime motivation for going on to to write the book. So um, I'm not sure if you've had a response from the former Chief Justice, but what response have you had, Prashant, from the Indian authorities or from the drug companies that you've analysed in the book?
1: Well, the drug companies haven't said anything so far. But when Dinesh and me had given some interviews recently on the tragedy in Gambia, where we had made certain comments stating that, you know, that the government of India and the national regulator can't escape responsibility for what happened in Gambia, they issued us very menacing legal notice, (laughs) you know, threatening all kinds of actions against us without exactly mentioning what laws we've broken. So that was an interesting experience to deal with the government on that. Generally, from, uh, you know, the doctors and common audience who read the book so far, the reception has been quite encouraging. I mean, people didn't know how bad things actually were in India. And I'm hoping that the book is read, you know, even outside the country, because a lot of countries do depend on imports of Indian medicine. And they need to be very careful about how exactly they consume those medicines and, you know, put pressure on their own regulatory authorities to make sure that uh, India steps up its game.
0: And in a nutshell, Prashant, what do you say needs to change in the regulatory environment in India for these problems to be reduced or, of course, ideally eliminated?
1: Well, the most important reform, in our opinion, is greater transparency. Right now, the Indian system is exceptionally opaque. I mean, we know this from personal experience because It was so difficult for us to get information to write this book. For example, you know, in the U.S., every time a drug inspector inspects a manufacturing facility, the reports made available in 30 days on the Internet. Inspection reports, test reports of drugs, the basis on which new drugs are approved for the market, enforcement action the moment the government makes all of this more transparent by making available more information proactively on their websites, things will change dramatically. Because the moment you empower people and journalists with information, you will definitely see change. Because right now, one of the reasons nobody's asking for reform is that they don't know how bad the system is. The moment we put out information, and allow citizens and journalists to audit the workings of the drug regulator, things will change dramatically. So transparency is one. The second, a bit more of a technical issue, is uh, federalism in the Indian context. So India is a union, basically, of 28 states and nine territories administered directly by the central government. Each state has its own drug regulator, plus the national government has its own regulator to look after imports, etc., So we have a system of basically 38 drug regulators within India. And that kind of fragmented framework is one of the reasons that many of these bad actors keep escaping through the cracks. One of our recommendations is to try and consolidate it a little bit better, because if you have a single market for drugs, where drugs can move from one state to another seamlessly, you also need to have a regulatory framework that can operate across state borders in a seamless manner. But that's, I mean, that's a long pending demand, actually, of a lot of people for reform in India.
0: Prashant Reddy, thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra.
1: Thank you for having me, Julian.
0: And Prashant Reddy is the co-author of the new book, The Truth Pill, The Myth of Drug Regulation in India. It's not yet available in Australia, but Prashant tells me that if you get in contact with Barrison's booksellers in India, they'll happily FedEx you a copy.